Youth justice in Western Australia is completely broken. Treatment which is overly harsh, inhumane, and on occasions unlawful. 48% of the youth crime in Queensland is committed by just 10% of criminals. Today, we'll be implementing seven tough new measures aimed directly at this cohort. New Productivity tenancy. Commission figures show Tasmania's prison system is one of the worst in the country. Inside the fences of Risdon Prison, the population increased from 474 to 664 in the past 10 years. Stories about prison and criminal justice in Australia focus on politicians being tough on crime or horror stories about youth detention and adult prisons. Rarely do we hear the word rehabilitation. But there are nations where it's accepted that rehabilitation and punishment go hand in hand and where prisoners, no matter what their crime, do have rights. And those nations are in Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Denmark and Finland. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision, the program that takes you behind the headlines. In this episode, Nordic prisons, and how and why these nations have developed a very different attitude to people who breach the law. Crime rates in Scandinavia are relatively low, and that may have something to do with the availability of social services, free education, health care, and generous welfare benefits. Norway has one of the lowest crime rates in the world as a whole. The whole of Scandinavia has one of the lowest crime rates in the world. It also has perhaps the lowest recidivism rate in the world, and that refers to the percentage of people going back to prison after being incarcerated. When they come out of prison, their likelihood of going back is, is low, and it hovers somewhere in the 20%. And that is as compared to somewhere in the 60-something percent in most of the rest of the world. So there's a significant difference. My name is Baz Dreisinger, and I'm a professor and executive director of Incarceration Nations Network. I think there are a number of different explanations. There is no one simple explanation, but I think there are a number of different theories about why that is. And I think the primary one has to do with availability of social services. Because of strong social services, crime is less likely to occur. People are going to get opportunities, and I'm generalizing, of course, it's never that simple. But overall, someone's, an average person's access to education, uh, to opportunities, to jobs, to social support, to healthcare is generally quite strong. And so therefore, they're going to be less likely to cause harm in the first place, to commit crime in the first place. That said, when crime happens, there are also in Norway and the other Scandinavian countries, very strong mediation programs that are capable of diverting people out of the system to begin with. So they don't necessarily automatically get sent to prisons as a knee-jerk immediate response. And what's the age of criminal responsibility in the Scandinavian countries? How old do you have to be to actually be held responsible under the law? The youngest age you can be to be have an ordinary sentence, if that's community service, or in some cases a prison sentence, is 15 years. My name is Jan Erik Sandli, and I'm Deputy Director General in the Directorate for Correctional Service. There are just a few inmates in Norway 
under the age of 18. They have all of them have committed serious crime and all together in Norway eight places for in two institutions for young people under 18. So there's just at the moment I think it's two or three under 18 in Norwegian prisons. Just by way of comparison, in Australia, the age of criminal responsibility is 10 years old. And according to figures from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, on an average night in 2021, there were 819 young people between the age of 10 and 17 years in youth detention. Sending someone, sending a young person to detention is the absolute complete last resort in Norway and in Scandinavia. It happens in extreme circumstances. And even there, there's a tremendous openness to maintaining family bonds, to ensuring education. Education in the youth centers is taken extremely seriously. The maximum term in the Norwegian criminal justice system is for 20 years, and that's murder and drug smuggling. I'm John Pratt, Emeritus Professor of Criminology at the Institute of Criminology, Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand. They have provision for indefinite sentences as well, but these are very, very rarely used. And as far as I'm aware, there's only a handful of prisoners serving those sentences. And one of them is the terrorist who murdered 70 plus people about 10 years ago. Norway prides itself on having an open and tolerant society and a humane prison system with a maximum jail term of 21 years, even for mass murder. The Oslo District Court has ruled that Anders Bering Breivik was sane when he killed 77 people in twin attacks last year. A verdict which means he'll spend 21 years in jail, but there's of course a proviso in Norwegian law that can keep him there for the rest of his life if he's still deemed a threat. So Breivik is still behind bars in Norway, and it's extremely unlikely that he will be released anytime soon. If there are scenarios where someone is clearly a great danger to society and needs to be deprived of liberty for extensive periods of time, that person will be held as such. I believe that Breivik just came up for parole and his case was reviewed like anyone else's. I also read about him studying. Uh, he was taking university classes and there was some uproar about this. But the philosophy is he's no different from anyone else. He is guided by the same principles of corrections as any other person incarcerated in Norway. He was not released. He did not receive parole. And from all indications, he probably will not because of safety issues. It does not appear at this time that he's given up the ideologies that caused him to commit such a grave act. And so until he does, or until there's real indication that he does, I don't see him having liberty anytime soon. So it's not as if the system there is naive in terms of not recognizing that there are some people, if you place them in the world, that will cause extreme harm. It's just that that's not the starting point for the Norwegian system. And I think it is the starting point for most other systems where the assumption is once you've committed this act of harm, you will continue to do so and you are dangerous. They're not operating from the premise of you are dangerous for life unless really given evidence to showcase that. If you get a sentence in Norway, 
if he has a serious sentence, then you stay in remand and you get transferred from remand to uh, serving the sentence. But if you are a shorter sentence, then you stay at home and then we call on you to show up in prison. So we don't have a problem with overcrowding. We don't get overcrowded prisons, but we have a waiting list because people are waiting to come into prison. One special thing in Norway is that it's up to us in the correctional service if the short sentences are going to be served in a prison or at home with electronic monitoring. The number of inmates are going down because more of the unconditional prison sentences are served at home with the electronic monitoring. What someone actually is convicted of a crime, whatever that crime is, and they go to a prison, what are those prisons like? They tend to be much smaller than prisons we have in Australia and New Zealand. They are likely to be much more local than in our countries. So if you go to prison, it's highly likely you won't be travelling far and your family will be able to get to see you with relative ease. Also, prisons aren't built in sort of remote hideaway places. If the countries are ashamed of them, I mean, usually found in the middle of towns and cities. And is there a specific reason for that? Was that actually planned or was it kind of almost by accident? I think it evolved by accident. If you go back to the 19th century, I mean, it was much the same in Australia, New Zealand, UK. Prisons were built in the middle of cities and towns. Towards the end of the 19th century in Australia, it became a modern society rather than a convict society townspeople and so on and so forth, they found the sight of prisons increasingly distasteful and disturbing, and there was a lot of pressure to move them out of the cities. In the Scandinavian countries, there doesn't really seem to have been that pressure at all. And certainly in the 20th century, 21st century, in the Nordic countries, prisons have been deliberately planned in towns and cities so that they wouldn't be built in remote, isolated places where nobody could see them. Once they're sentenced, they go to prison and we have open and closed prisons. And again, comparing with other countries, we have quite a few, especially in Norway and Denmark, a lot of our prison spaces are open prisons, around one third of the entire capacity. And that's a lot if you compare that to other countries. So my name is Peter Scharf-Smith. I'm a professor in the sociology of law at the University of Oslo in Norway. So and these open prisons, I mean, they're prisons, but it's not very difficult to escape if you wanted to. What, the reason that people don't escape is if they get caught, they wind up at a closed prison with a longer sentence, etc. And so these open prisons, they are, again, relatively speaking, uh, compared to many other countries, they're, they're quite liberal if you're in a low security prison or open prison in Sweden, one I visited, there's a car park for the inmates and they commuted to Stockholm during the day for work. And if they were going to be late back at night, they would phone the prison and a meal would be left out for them when they got back. 
coming from New Zealand, I, f- I found it really difficult to digest that when I was told it, but that's how it works. In Finnish open prisons that I visited, you'll find uh, the inmates doing the same kind of work as on the outside and being paid the going rate. And there was one open prison in Finland I visited where they were making some quite sophisticated-looking speedboats and they were getting good wages, but they would have to pay a sum of from those wages for their board and keep in the prison as if they were renting their cell, they would have to donate money from the wages to pay off fines or to compensate their victims, and the rest of the money they would save. But again, they weren't totally shut out of society, as we tend to treat prisoners here. The closed prisons are, in many ways, a lot like other closed prisons in other countries, but still there are ways in which they are somewhat special in terms of how the prison officers deal with the prisoners, uh, to some extent at least. And one particular thing which is considered, which is normal in the Scandinavian countries and which is not normal in many other parts of the world is that prisoners cook their own meals, which means that they have access to kitchens, knives. (laughs) It's a very meaningful activity in a prison that you can actually, you can buy your own groceries, you can cook your own meals. And that's special compared to most other jurisdictions. In this episode, we're looking at the prison systems of the Scandinavian nations of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark, and asking just how and why they are different. So what is life like for prisoners in a Scandinavian prison? And what are the principles on which the system is based? If and when they do get sent to prison, that system looks very, very different from essentially systems all over the world because of a few principles that oversee the Norwegian and the Scandinavian system. And really, they can be boiled down to three principles that capture the essence of the Norwegian system. The first is what's known as the principle of normality or normalcy, which is that life inside prisons ought to resemble life outside as closely as possible. And so that means wearing your own clothes, cooking in communal kitchens, having a fair amount of mobility in different spaces, having a quote-unquote cell that isn't really a cell, but more of a kind of dorm-like situation, and then very, very critically receiving the same services that they would receive as if they were on the outside. If you look at the prison buildings, I think the Norwegian prisons look almost the same as prisons in other countries, but we are running them after what we call the principle of normality. One of the effects of the principle of normality is that It's all the agencies running, education, health, and so on, outside the prison. They are also responsible for having that service for the inmates inside the prison. Education in the prison are run by the ordinary education authorities in Norway. The school inside the prison is always a part of the school outside the prison. 
So that means the same education system is serving people on the inside, the same healthcare system. So that's very, very critical, this idea of normality. The other idea is this idea of reintegration, integration, or progression, as it's called, which is that there's a consistent focus on what's going to happen when someone leaves. They're A, less likely to get, there are not very long sentences, even for violent offenses in Norway. So you're generally serving not such a long sentence, but regardless, even if you are, there's a tremendous emphasis from day one on what's going to happen when you leave the system, when you come out, when you go home. And so there is an emphasis on that, which often means that many people, not all people in prison in Norway, but somewhere around 30% are in open prisons, which means that they can leave and work on jobs on the outside, perhaps go to school on the outside, go to family leave. And so again, remaining integrated into the community, which also plays into this idea of normalcy, of trying to recreate as much of regular life as absolutely possible. And you can increasingly move yourself toward more freedom, more openness within the Norwegian system as your sentence, as your time goes on. And then lastly, the other factor that's tremendously important is the idea of what's called dynamic security or relational security. And that means that instead of, uh, as in most countries, the US, Australia, especially thinking about barbed wire fences and armed guards being security, that's not what Norwegian and Scandinavian systems see as secure. To them, secure has to do with the way that officers, correctional officers act as guides, as educators, have a relationship with the people who are incarcerated and are working together with them to move them to a better place in life and opportunities when they come out. And so it's a very different relationship between the officers and the incarcerated individuals. And likewise, it's also very important to note that the officers in the Norwegian system and again in the Scandinavian system are going to extensive training in a curriculum that looks totally unlike anything else in the world. They're not spending a few months learning military tactics and how to guard fences. Instead, they're learning law, social work, psychology, education in a corrections officer training institute that is enormously thoughtful and that, again, looks like nothing else in the world. And you mentioned the relationship with the guards. Why is that seen as so important? And what kind of people choose to be prison guards in places like Norway and the other Scandinavian countries? So in Norway and and the other Scandinavian countries, a prison guard position is a very respected one. Again, that's unique. Unfortunately, in most everywhere else in the world, to be a prison guard is sort of a last resort for many people. But it's a respected position that's seen as an educator, someone who's guiding lives. So that automatically shapes the kind of person who's drawn to the profession. It's a very different kind of person and it pays fairly well and it's respected. Why is so much emphasis placed on this? Well, it's called corrections and more than anything else, corrections and education 
is a product of the person doing the work and engaging with the individuals inside. I mean, you can have the most high-tech, gorgeous classroom in the world, but it's really about the interactions between the teachers and the students. And so that's the philosophy that guides the prisons within the Scandinavian system. The staff matters a lot. The staff is treated as such, encouraged to really engage with people, get to know people and work from that context. Prison officers do rely quite a lot on what we call dynamic security. So, Static security is prison walls, surveillance cameras, etc. Dynamic security is prison officers knowing about the prisoners, having a relationship with them, talking to them, etc. And that is on paper and also, I think, to quite a large extent in practice, an important part of the Danish, Swedish and Norwegian system. And all these things, both prisoners being allowed to cook their own meals, this notion of dynamic security having quite a lot of open prisons is all these things relate to something which we call the principle of normalization. And that's important in the Norwegian, Danish and Swedish prison service, this principle of normalization. And the principle of normalization is basically says two things that you keep your rights while you're in prison. It's a rights based approach. And also that prisons should be as much like the outside as possible. But it's not quite as rosy as it seems, because while this philosophy and idea of rights applies to all prisoners once they've been convicted and sentenced, before a person's actually convicted, so while in custody waiting for their day in court, these same rights do not apply. Before you're sentenced in Scandinavian countries, and especially Sweden and Denmark, it's a very, very different matter. The state allows itself to restrict the rights of pre-trial detainees in ways which are not possible in England, for example. I mean, in England, you can use the phone several times a week on remand. You can get several visits, typically, in most remand institutions. In Denmark, during pre-trial, you're not allowed to use the phone. And most prisoners have special restrictions. So if they do get a visit, it's half an hour a week with a police officer you have to look at the remand pretrial on the one hand and then the sentenced prisoners on the other hand. And the pretrial is a huge chunk of the prison population, if you like, in Denmark. It's more than 30% of all the people that we deprive of their liberty are remand prisoners. A lot of the things that goes on during remand, the system, etc., has nothing to do with penal exceptionalism. It does live up to the principle of normalization. What is it about the system in the Scandinavian nations that means prisoners are less likely to return to prison once released? So for one, the very fact of moving down in security level as your sentence goes on and moving to an open prison where you're permitted to go and come is critical to the reintegration process because it means you are already integrated. You don't have to be reintegrated. You already have a job. You have maintained relationship with the community. You have the doctor that you go to see. You've maintained a relationship with your family, with your kids. And so that makes an enormous difference. There's a lot less reintegration to do in the context of Scandinavia than there is in most other countries in the world. 
And as a result of that, and this I think is really critically important, the stigma against people who have been in prison is much lower than in other countries. Of course, there's still discrimination. It's impossible to eradicate that entirely. But overall, there is an ethos and a philosophy that's stressed that is about, these are our neighbors, we must embrace them, it benefits us all to have them integrated into society. And if they went away to prison, it was for an act that needed to be addressed or a behavior that needed to be addressed. And so let's embrace them back into the community. So all of these factors make for a much smoother reintegration process or sustained integration process than in other countries. That's not to say that there aren't challenges. There are. And increasingly, there's a move in Norway a kind of influence of the right and an influence of countries like the U.S. that are much more draconian. And so there's certainly some sort of reactionary stuff happening now. And I think folks in Norway would say that this whole system is in danger, is at risk of being dismantled or at least being severely dampened in its progressive ways. Absolutely. Norway, Sweden and Denmark, we've seen tough on crime policies also becoming more and more popular. But Denmark is an outlier here because this has been so much more extreme in Denmark compared to Norway and Sweden. I would say that in Norway, for example, there's still a broad political support for having a prison service, which main aim is to rehabilitate prisoners, even though there are talks regularly also about raising sentences, etc., that basic notion of the purpose of punishment has very much political support in Norway. And that is not the case in Denmark. In, during the last two decades, the major political parties, more or less all across the political spectrum, it's been tough on crime. It's been a competition who can be the toughest. And ironically, it's created a crisis in the Danish prison system because prison officers are quitting. Nobody wants the job. So we have a severe lack of staff. And a couple of years ago, they made an analysis. The prison service made its own analysis. They asked prison officers, why are they quitting? And a lot of them said that they didn't think the work made any sense anymore. They were educated and hired to help rehabilitate prisoners. And that's not part of the work anymore because politicians only want prison conditions to get worse. As one prison officer said, so we spend more time looking up the ass of prisoners than talking to them. And so that's one of the reasons that prison officers have quit. <laughs> that is because of those policies. In my mind, these politicians, they've attacked, in a way, the heart of the Danish prison service or principle of normalization. And as a result, the prison system is currently in a severe crisis. Is there anything we can learn from the Scandinavian system? It's hard to say because you're talking about differences that have evolved over something like 200 years. I think one of the things that struck me most was the importance of having informed debate about crime and punishment issues. Let me give you an example. There was a general election in Norway, I think two or three cycles ago, six or seven years, something like that. And the Norwegian Broadcasting Authority staged a series of debates and one of the debates was on law and order. And so they had someone from the Labour Party and their opposite number 
from the equivalent of the Conservative Party, but they held the debate in a prison. And the third member of the panel was a prisoner who was taking questions and answering as well. Again, that's the kind of importance that they place on giving all sections of society an opportunity to speak on such occasions and making sure that debate, political debate, doesn't just end up in the kind of shouting matches that I've seen in New Zealand and I'm sure you've seen here. Imagine yourself being in prison. Imagine how you would like to be treated. Let's start treating, trying to treat prisoners like that. That would be a starting point for reform. John Pratt, Emeritus Professor of Criminology at the Victorian University of Wellington. My other guests, Baz Dreisinger, Professor and Executive Director of Incarceration Nations Network. Jan Erik Sandelay, Deputy Director General in the Norwegian Directorate of Corrective Services. And Peter Sharp-Smith, Professor in the Sociology of Law at the University of Oslo in Norway. The sound engineer is Hamish Kamaliri. I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision. <laughs>